0: Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting
1: cinema. My name is Thomas simonsen and, and I am Sverre Ågård. And today we are discussing the 2006 movie Taxidermia, directed by Georgi Palfi and written by Georgi Palfi and Sofia Rutke, based on short stories by Laos Partinaghi with cinematography by Kajeli Poharnok and music by Amon Tobin. The movie is starring Saba Zene as Moros Vendel, Gergeli Troksiani as Balatoni Kalman, Adele Stadzel as Atschel Gizi and Mark Bischoff as Balatoni Lajoska. So we just got to apologize for the pronunciation of those Hungarian names. It is incredibly difficult. (laughs) Yeah, we're doing as best as
0: we can. Hopefully it's okay. Before we get into it, as usual, we recommend that you've seen the film, perhaps even recently, as we will spoil the plot.
1: We're going to spoil it for you, like
0: some rotten meat. Extensively, we go through the story and whatever happens in it. So the plot, more or less, follows three generations of men, from the Second World War to communist... Hungary, yeah, like um, the sixties or something. Yeah, and then kind of the post-Soviet, maybe nineties or contemporary, something like that.
1: Yeah, it's basically this triptych. There's three like phases to the movie.
0: Right. When we start off, following um, Moris Giovanni, who is kind of this low-ranking, I don't know, shed boy. Who's uh, he
1: seems like the lowest rank you can possibly get in the army.
0: Yeah. yeah he's responsible for uh, taking care of the pigs and chopping wood and like doing yeah. all the menial tasks. Yeah. For for this lieutenant. And early on, he kind of lists up all his his tasks he has to do on Saturday. So we know that his life is boring, hard labor. It's a hard life.
1: Yeah, like this endless, meaningless list of tasks Mm. that he has to perform and interspersed with like masturbation.
0: Yeah. And most importantly, he's told not to peep. Which he definitely does.
1: He is a huge peeping Tom.
0: Yeah, yeah. it seems to be his only connection to pleasure at all. He's uh, constantly uh, barked at and told what to do and stuff.
1: He seems very deprived of anything.
0: So he spends a lot of time peeking at the uh, lieutenant's daughters and at one point has sexual intercourse with... It could be the wife of the lieutenant or it could be just a pig carcass. The film kind of goes
1: back and forth a bit. (laughs) I like how casually you say that. It's either (laughs) the wife of the lieutenant or a pig carcass. It's a bit unclear. And it is a bit unclear. Yeah. But anyway,
0: she gives birth to a son who has a pigtail which kind of makes things a bit unclear. And the lieutenant sees this, and he cuts off the pigtail, but he accepts the son as his. Yeah. He's also, when he found uh, Mojivane resting on the pig carcass, he blew his head off.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, which would indicate he knew about infidelity. But maybe just because he's a pervert. Yeah. It's also a bit unclear. Yeah.
0: <laughs> (laughs) And from then on, we skip to um, the grown-up son, whose name is and He's an athlete of
1: eating. Competitive eating. Yeah,
0: competitive eating. It's it's like a sport. It's like an Olympic sport where you eat gruel, just this uh, watery, lumpy stuff as quick as you can. Well,
1: they eat a variety of things. And actually, it's like, this isn't a real Olympic sport, but in (laughs) this universe, which is this alternative, (laughs) weird Soviet world, competitive eating is like the biggest thing.
0: Yeah. And he's one of the best. And he's a, quite a large man that he's been on second place. And in one of the main scenes, he notices a woman looking at him while he's, he's eating. And his jaw gets stuck and he ends up in hospital. But he gets together with this woman, and they have a child, Lyoska, who ends up being a taxidermist many years later. And at this point, Coleman has become excruciatingly obese, like this monstrosity. It's more of a puppet than a human being. Uh, yeah, he's uh, like the
1: guy from the Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Mr. Creosote. Yeah, Terry Jones is this uh, monster just constantly eating. I feel like that has to have been an inspiration at some level.
0: It seems like it, yeah, definitely. Anyway, so Lyoska, the taxidermist's son, he... Um, He's taking care of his father, more or less. He has kind of an isolated life. His father was kind of a, a small celebrity in his town. Now he's just an embittered, prideful monster, basically. Yeah, he
1: never reached the level he wanted to. Now he just, like, eats... Candy bars with the wrappers still on them because yeah. that's faster and you can get more in, in an hour. Yeah, and absolutely. he raises these vicious cats that eat only margarine. It's a horrible yeah, they're lifestyle.
0: Pet, they're pet cats. So they're quite large and they're also in their own section of the room with like a caged door in front of it. Yeah, and, like dangerous cats. Yeah, they're constantly hissing. And and uh, yosuke has an electric prod to keep them away and he wears like these
1: gloves and stuff. But his he, father just constantly abuses him. He's yeah. basically like his father's whipping boy.
0: Right. And his wife has left him. We see her on television at some point attached to a more successful uh, competitive eater.
1: There's like an American competitive eater yeah. and uh, he likes shouts at the TV. Mm. It's pretty sad.
0: At any rate, he keeps berating his son, who at some point gets fed up and decides, fuck this shit, I'm not taking any more of it. And he just kind of leaves and doesn't close the door for the cats. And later on, when he returns, the cats have ate through his stomach and his
1: His gigantic belly. Yeah, And there's like guts and entrails and like this long trail of guts into the cat's cage.
0: Mm. (laughs) So he's dead uh, at this point. But instead of kind of panicking or reacting with remorse, he ends up taking his father to his taxidermist shop and stuffing him, at which point he's also constructed a machine that he's put himself into that kind of allows him to perform taxidermy on himself. He kind of takes out his own intestines, and then at the very end he pushes a button which cuts off his head and his arm, at which point a sleazy customer that we've seen before who's wanted like a secretive job comes by we see that his secretive job is a human fetus in a small glass. Uh, yeah, it's
1: like a keychain. Uh, <laughs> so horrible. Yeah,
0: in a glass ball. It, it's nasty.
1: Yeah, it's fucking. It's it's good shit.
0: Yeah, and anyway, he comes in and he sees the bodies, and then we skip to an art gallery, and he's having a talk with an English translator, quite uh, pompous. Yeah, over. he's
1: like this art curator. Wow. Mm like lots of fancy people in this like gorgeous sumptuous uh, museum yeah
0: everything is white everyone's clad in white it's very stiff it's very cold
1: yeah and he has like this panegyric like uh monologue about Mm. these art pieces the last things he created it's pretty fucked up (laughs) to say the least
0: definitely and then the camera kind of zooms in or tracks into uh belly and into his navel and goes to black and then the the film ends
1: yeah i would also add that it seems like the reasons he performs his self-taxidermy he's also uh sort of rejected by this woman at the supermarket and his dad dies so it it doesn't seem like he has anything left to live for basically his life is pretty pathetic
0: it's pretty isolated and uh
1: he doesn't seem to have any friends (laughs) (laughs) he seems he seems pretty fucking like he needs a a walk in the sun Mm. that's the story it is fairly straightforward like There isn't a lot of subplots. What you see is sort of what you get. I feel like there isn't a lot of subtext. And I feel like that's intentional.
0: It's kind of interesting, I think, because it definitely feels allegorical and has kind of a socio-political digesting Hungary's history. Yeah, I feel like Uh, you can read that into it. But there's also a lot of ambiguity yeah. to it. It feels almost surrealistic or at least definitely feels
1: like it has this surreal dada vibe yeah. to it. And it also it's incredibly visual and visceral. Uh, yeah, and visceral. So I feel like a lot of what the movie is is sort of these gorgeous art pieces and this incredibly interesting and weird and fucked up situations. Mm. You could put a lot of thought into the context and the socio-political stuff. And there's, there's definitely stuff to be had there if you're interested. But I think, like, really it's about sort of the visceral art of the movie, in a sense. And it's also very funny. Yeah,
0: it's very funny. Like, it's funny. kind of unpredictable. It's definitely weird. It's definitely unpleasant, like, the scenes of guts or bodies being cut out. There's so much or, body stuff. Yeah, it feels almost hyper-realistic and very um, close to the skin and the sweat and the body fluids. Yeah,
1: it's kind of beautiful that we're talking about this movie after the Greasy Strangler because I feel they have a lot of commonality. Mm. There is so much sort of bodily stuff stuff going on so many close-ups so much like gnarly sounds so much like eating fucking, uncensored you know dicks Mm. vaginas like the whole shebang it's like just so much sweat and bodily hair and like yeah it's quite something and I feel like that's so important to the movie like Mm. it's so important that all of these things are like so central and so unabashedly shown Like, there's this scene that really sticks with me where uh, Kalman is in the hospital after getting locked jaw and apparently has some heart issues too because yeah. he has like hit- Scar. Yeah, scars and like bandages on his chest and stuff. And like his girlfriend like reaches over and like you see this close up mm-hmm. of her armpit and like a drop of sweat that just drips on his face and mm. he like licks it and it's like it's not even explained except like maybe he's that voracious like mm. he just wants to consume and eat and stuff himself mm. but it's just so beautifully shot and mm. so disgusting i feel like it's like a pivotal thing for me to like sum up what this movie really is because it's, it's focused on insatiability and bodies
0: yeah definitely the cinematography is absolutely beautiful
1: it is so uh, so I mean, good
0: it uses a lot of cinematic techniques like swooping cameras and uh, tracking shots and inserts combining shots through 3D. Very beautiful. It's, it's an extremely competent production.
1: Yeah, I would also yeah. say it's very well edited yeah. by Recca Lemenil, It flows so nicely mm. together with the cinematography. It's just mm. a piece of art and the colors, the compositions and a lot of the techniques too. Like mm. there's this scene early on that's very interesting with this scene of uh, a camera panning around this wooden trough that's being used for everything at this sort of farm place yeah like a tub yeah in the first sort of generation Mm. it's almost like so symbolic of life death consumption of food like the whole human experiment the whole of humanity is like summed up in this object in a way that's almost religious Mm -hmm. and gorgeous and disgusting and the way it pans around almost reminds me of like the matrix or something it's like the technique is so
0: interesting reminds me a bit of the cell or some music videos from the 90s yeah it has that sort of experimental
1: like people were trying out a lot of interesting stuff mm. in regards to cinematography and 3D stuff mm. and it definitely has a sort of music video vibe to it as well. And it's really interesting
0: as well because this character Mo Giovanni he's been peeping at these young women these daughters of the lieutenant in the tub and he comes in and there's some bathing water left and he kind of kneels in front of it and first he smells it and then he kind of sticks his face into the <laughs> the remnants of the, the bathing water. Yeah. And then the camera starts to swoop like in a circle around continuously. And it cross-dissolves between yeah, yeah. different scenes. The wife bathing, Mojani himself sleeping in it.
1: A dead body. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the general, it seems. Of yeah. sort of sorts. Which is actually the author of the short stories yeah. that uh, inspired this movie. And a, a newborn baby. Yeah. <laughs> and the
0: clothes being washed. Bread dough being uh, yeah kneaded, then it's empty, and then there's this pig cut up into bits. Then it's the two young women bathing and playing and splashing water again, and then it goes down into the ground for like the third time or whatever, and back to Mojirane. So it has this very kind of, as you say, functions of life, different people being used in many different ways. This object. So.
1: Yeah, and also before this whole sequence. The reason that Moros Giovanni has to name this list of his chores is because he's caught jerking off into this trough as it's standing outside with water in it and a layer of ice. Oh, I thought he was just washing himself. No, he was masturbating into it as far as I (laughs) recall. Anyway. I love, especially like the first part of this movie, Mm. I especially love because the editing is so tight Mm. and a lot of it almost reminds me a bit of like Guy Ritchie, like of his very quick succession of Mm. edits and cuts. It's very like intense and very cool but also like the way the shots are framed so closely it's also kind of uncomfortable the way it's done
0: yeah i mean it's very intimate and he uses a lot of insert shots of close skin wet skin mixed with wider shots and it has kind of an associative editing where it follows the train of thought a bit like uh, he's thinking about this this is what we see comes and goes
1: yeah, it's really good. And I would also say like the set design, like the mm. mise mm. stuff is so good. Like in the first part, it's like so cold and uncomfortable and yeah. the level of poverty and stuff. And there's a sequence when they slaughter this hog. Yeah. And it's so beautiful yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's so disgusting. And like you can see like the frost smoke coming out of their mouths. Like the blood is fuming with this mm. frost smoke because it's so hot and it's so disgusting. It seems almost like archetypal and like elemental in the way that it's portrayed. It's so beautiful. And also,
0: there, like the context the scene is in, uh, it's very interesting because you have Mojivana he's comforting the pig before. And he tells it, Don't worry about your figure, just get nice and fat. And he sings like a sad song about an orphan girl. And then we see him with a book of the little matchstick girl. And there's yeah. some insert shots of him, possibly as a child.
1: Yeah, you know? it's the H.C. Anderson story. Yeah.
0: And he, he opens the book and it has this big pop up stuff. And the camera goes in and then. He is in the book. It's kind of beautifully tracked.
1: Yeah, it's really like the way that's done, it's yeah. fucking magical. Yeah. And of course it's used to portray this kind of pedophile scene.
0: Yeah, because he goes and sits <laughs> next to in this little matchstick girl and he um kind of creepily comforts her and takes her hand and kind of rubs it warm and then he kind of sticks it in his jacket and he asks her if she wants to see the stars. And it gets really creepy and the image cuts to stars. And we hear like this intense pig squealing and then we see the pig get cut open, which is like this very uh, evocative and intense. Yeah, the uh, associative
1: stuff is, it's just fucking intense and horrible. And he seems like so consumed with sexuality and also like as this, maybe like this sort of relief for him to get out of his Mm. fucking miserable life. Yeah. So that's like his like one source of joy in life, yeah. and it seems like successively like these three characters, these three generations, like have like one focus. It seems to me like that the first part is very kind of intimate
0: and very perverse, yeah. and the second part is quite monumental and very proud. And kind of... um, Big. Yeah, (laughs) big, but there's something quite failed about it. And it's also quite, you know, disgusting. It's all the puking. And the last part is very cold, very alienated, quite clinical. Yeah. And that's more to do with corpses and skin. They kind of all have each their own territory they're dealing with.
1: Yeah, I feel like especially the two first parts are very excessive in each their own way. Yeah. While the third one is more like a failure, and mm. like this cold dismal reality even though sad. it's a fantasy it's super sad like with this main character of the third part mm. who just looks like he looks like fucking Riff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show <laughs> like he's <laughs> this pale ghoul of a guy and he's yeah. so skinny compared to this monstrously large yeah. father and it's sort of symbolic of the way he's sort of a much bigger failure than he like he was a sort of celebrity at one point he's just this miserable guy who can't get the checkout girl's number or yeah
0: he doesn't even have pets as friends. He's just have dead animals.
1: That yeah, eat. he just creates these horrible art pieces yeah. out of dead animals. Yeah. At one point, when the sleazy doctor comes over and he he wants to get this like fetus thing embalmed or whatever, he tries to buy this art piece <laughs> and it's like this is ear with like a ferret sticking out of it. It's so, <laughs> so fucking stupid. Yeah. And it's so ugly. Yeah. And he's like, no, that's not for sale. <laughs> like yeah. he thinks it's important. It's
0: It has to be said, this film is very funny. It's extremely watchable, I think. It's very visceral. It's very beautiful. I mean, the music by Amon Tobin, also fantastic.
1: Perfect. Very, like, on point Mm. for what's going on. And it really sets the stage. And also creates, like, an extra layer of unsettling atmosphere Mm. at some points. But I would also say, like, it's not very overtly funny. It's funny in a very, like, European movie funny like the greasy strangler does a lot of similar things but it's funny in a quite different way it's more gross out it's more more gross out and like more quirky in an overt way this movie is like it's very quirky and very funny but it's almost like in a low-key way because nobody in this movie is in on the joke (laughs) no (laughs) no of course like in the greasy strangler he's having fun with it he's getting weird with it you know in this movie people are like very like self-important and like grandiose or like sad but their lives are pathetic and funny mm. the idea is, i mean
0: it's a hilarious the idea that there's <laughs> competitive eating as a big national sport it's so
1: fucking funny like the scene where you have these kids that are learning to get into the sport mm. and they're eating like this semolina gruel yeah the sludge and like their coach is like and you're getting cocoa powder with this and he like (laughs) tosses it out like fucking breadcrumbs to pigeons into this huge trough with like separator walls with these fat children sitting next like it's so fucking disgusting Mm -hmm. and fucking funny yeah it's so funny
0: and it's also funny because the idea in in this narrative is that like in communist soviet society like The big sport is consuming as much as possible, like almost like an ultra capitalistic fantasy, like of just stuffing yourself as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, it's like this weird contrast between the way normal people live and like this idealized, sort of all consuming, horrible, gigantic beast Mm. of just food consumption. It's interesting the way that's sort of juxtaposed with the way the Soviet regime actually was, which was so austere and would never idealize that shit. It takes place in this sort of weird alternative reality and it's very interesting because it's very like well thought out the minor details of the set design when it comes to these competitive eating matches like after they've done a round of eating they go and puke it all out and they have like these headbands they can rest against while they puke mm. and they get like these injections of like lubricant or whatever mm. to throw up better it all seems very lived and gnarly and gritty and very well done like the design of it those Parts also remind me a lot of Roy Anderson and yeah, his, yeah, his, his brand of humor. The characters aren't aware of it, but it's so sad and funny and, and sort of bizarre.
0: As you said, there's so much details. Like there's a lot of language around like their competitive eating. Like they have a term called the Gamea Cross Swallow. Yes.
1: So funny. <laughs> uh, what the fuck is that? How do you cross
0: swallow? And there's this kid who got gold in Beijing for eating hard-boiled eggs.
1: <laughs> yeah, he got gold in hard-boiled eggs. That was like the branch. It's like you have 100 meters. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the marathon. And like in this, you have fucking hard bell eggs and you have like a fucking horse sausage. And like there's different branches you can specialize in, I guess.
0: And weirdly, like in that part of the movie, they also keep referring to Norway. Like Bella, Kalman's main competitor, who's also a Hungarian eating champion. There's a scene where the day when uh, Gizzi and Kalman get married, he fucks her
1: outside. Yeah, it's so fucking...
0: Sc- and he screams so out, I won you, Gizzi.
1: Norwegian. Yeah, he, like, wanted to take her to Norway and yeah. stuff. Like, elope.
0: That's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> and it's such a fucking sad... He's getting, like, cucked on his mm. wedding day. Mm. Like, their lives are just so fucking miserable and mm. weird. And- oh, God god i i love the way it's done it's so fucking disgusting and sad and i don't know what it is like you don't really feel much compassion for the characters either because they're kind of terrible everyone and that just makes it all the more like good to laugh at them you know it's also funny how
0: prideful and disgusting he is at the last segment comment and his pride is so weird, with a lot of you kind know, venomous pride. He said, "I had a vomiting technique named after me." He shouts to his son is a way to assert how important he was, like a vomiting
1: technique. Yeah, <laughs> but it almost feels like the entire thing is like this satirization of Western society yeah. put into a like Soviet epoch. It's very interesting in the way it's done and the way it subverts a lot of understandings of Soviet society and stuff. Mm. And it sort of does go from the Second World War, you know, until the Soviet regime is basically perished, mm. but in a different sort of universe, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess in some ways it almost has the fourth part, like it's a separate thing at the art gallery, which it kind of invokes like Damien Hirst or Joel Peter Witkin, the sort of uh, artists that work with dead bodies in a gallery setting yeah yeah.
1: that too and i guess you could see it as like this sort of crowning achievement of the decadence of our culture where you sort of navel gaze in perpetuity basically horrendous shit but at the same time i feel like it's just fun yeah i feel like i've had a bit of a hard time of finding interviews with the director Mm -hmm. but i found a coplan and he talks about you know how he wants his movies to definitely be like fun like Mm. it's art for him Mm. and it's supposed to be fun and I definitely feel that I feel like he has a lot of fun with it and I feel like a lot of it really is on the surface level Mm. of this beautifully made film
0: yeah I mean, this thing can easily misfire, I feel like, when you're drawing in these. It's kind of expressionistic in the way, how it communicates it. But it has a lot of specificity to it. Like I'm sure there's a lot of things that we don't pick up because we don't really know Hungarian history that well. But it feels very specific and very clear. And um, his uh, previous film before this, his debut, Huckle, I really like as well. And it's very different. It's not unpleasant in that sense. It also has kind of a... Allegorical vibe to it. It's like a remote village, and there's like lots of observations of daily life. And then there's this farmer who's hiccuping a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's very closely observed things, and there's just this feeling of unease that's creeping on there. There's a dead body, and you can sense it like.
1: Yeah, because it's a murder it's, mystery. It's,
0: yeah, I mean, it is kind of a murder mystery, but ostensibly you could watch it and not really understand, because it doesn't really explicitly talk about that so much.
1: No, but I feel like that is something he does on purpose as a director. He he very much doesn't want to create standard narratives He talks a lot about this, Mm. that he wants to have fun and he wants to go in this offbeat, jazzy kind of fashion of subverting narratives in a traditional sense. And it's really interesting. And I would also say, uh, I find it interesting that Hungary chose to nominate both his previous movie and Taxidermia, well, not his previous, his previous before Taxidermia, to to the Academy Awards Mm. as the best foreign movie.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I mean, the thing about Huckle, which kind of is informative in terms of taxidermy as well, is that he wants you as a viewer, he wants to activate you for you to interpret, for you to kind of engage with the material. I mean, you, taxidermy, you can take that as fun, but there's a lot of ambiguity in the narrative oh, yeah, for, for you sure. To, uh, deal with on your own
1: part. And I feel like you could easily tie it in with the new extremity of movies in Europe around that time mm. and a bit previous, because it definitely has this sort of postmodern sense of, fuck you, I'm not going to give you anything mm. in terms of making you understand why I'm telling you the story. Mm. You're left to figure it out on your own. Mm. You know, luckily, it's so beautiful that you would barely even think about that mm. because it's worth so much just watching it that you don't really, like the people who might get incensed over the lack of motives for telling the mm. story, I can see that you might get annoyed by it if you're really into like traditional storytelling mm. modes, but it just works well. And I, I also find it really cool that it does have this sort of sense of leaving everything up to you in terms of morality, mm. in terms of what you get from the sort of narrative that is there.
0: And it has this uh, sequence towards the end, which I think is quite interesting, um, as Leoska is um, performing the taxidermy on his own body. And the sound um, design at this point, there's kind of room sounds, but it's pretty quiet. And you're looking at several images of like skin being cut off and different intestines being picked up and put in jars. And he's, he's doing this to himself. And you're kind of resting on these images the camera's pretty still. It's it's just observing. And and it's, it's extremely close up. It's very close up and it spends a lot of time. It's not like a quick cut. Like some of the earlier things, like with the, the women in the bathwater and stuff, were quite short inserts of wet bodies, kind of intimate. But this is very cold and it's very observing. And it puts you in a space where you might start to wonder, why am I watching this?
1: Yeah, like it, it, and it's also it makes it almost abstract. Yeah, Like it's very objectifying yeah. in the way that other directors in The New Extremity also make use of quite extensively, which is this sort of very close focus on the human body Mm. and sort of objectifying it to the point where it's basically like just moving shapes almost. Mm. And the way that scene in particular is done sort of... Almost takes away from the grotesqueness of it in a way. I don't know. You feel sort of disconnected to it. You don't see him doing it to himself Mm -hmm. almost. You you almost feel like you're watching like surgical videos. Yeah. Training videos. I agree.
0: You have some shots of his face, but mostly you see his, just a hand dealing with bodies. Like, yeah. If this was supposed to be a real situation and this guy was taking out his
1: intestines for real... He wouldn't be able to do it. He wouldn't like, be able to do it. So again, it's entering this sort of fantasy land. Yeah, or, or and, like and it's kind reality. of separated
0: it in the film. Like you have the close-ups of the face and he's just looking at it quite coolly, just doing his job in a way. And then you have these this body, almost as if he's doing it on another body. He's so alienated from his own um, flesh in a way.
1: And, yeah. And it, of
0: course he ends up as this torso, this Joel Peter Witkin torso with this big uh, stitch going down
1: yeah. Yeah, he ends up looking like this Roman marble statue. Yeah, you know? it's like the Venus de Milo almost. But I would also say like the final sequence of him sort of doing his self taxidermy. Mm. It reminds me a lot of Franz Kafka's short story mm. in the penal colony. Yeah, and I feel like that also has to have some sort of inspiration. I don't know if that's part of the short stories because I wasn't able to find any of them in translation. Apparently not so easy to find Hungarian stuff in translation. Yeah, but, this in Nagy's yeah, stories. But if so, then I feel like that probably would have been inspired in some part because it's it's less actually that's that short story is also horrific and bodily gruesome and but it's also very comic. It's also very funny in a way that's very reminiscent of this movie. Although I would say the last scene in this movie Like I would say the tone is quite somber in the last part mm. compared to the previous episodes.
0: It's not as funny. It's more like funny in in melancholy, in a way.
1: Yeah, and also funny in the like sheer absurdity and also unbelievableness of it. Yeah, and I guess it does make sense because it is very excessive. It's taking us to this extreme place that nobody would ever do, probably, unless you were like fucking Ed Gein or something. I don't know, like the sheer absurdity of it is kind of funny. I like get it it's kind of funny that this little, like, insignificant, pale ghoul of a guy turns himself into, like, this lauded piece of artwork with these, like, rich fucking uh, gallery goers in, like, pure white gowns sort of marvel at the, like, artwork. Like, it's so, it's so bizarre.
0: I found this pretty interesting article by Stephen Shaviro called Body Horror and Post Socialist Cinema Georgi Palefis Taxidermia. And I thought I'd read some excerpts of it. In terms of this scene specifically, he says... um, Laios transforms himself and his father into statues. As works of art, they possess a greater measure of value and prestige than either of them ever had when they were alive. Laios, ironically, joins the international art celebrity fashion finance circuit, as after death he's celebrated both as an artist of genius and as the commodified work of art itself. Leos had no power and received no recognition while he was alive. But now, transformed by death, he achieves prestige by embodying cultural capital in person, as it were. That is interesting. That Isn't is it? That not
1: it thats very well written. Yeah. Uh, very well put. I agree. It's fascinating the way he turns himself from this insignificant nobody into this basically like uh, admired artist mm. and piece of art when he's the exact opposite in life. Mm. And... I guess it's interesting also in the context of post-Soviet cinema and stuff, because of so much of the suffering of the Soviet period has been commodified and turned into art. It's true. And made fun of being used to the butt of jokes. And also, of course, explored in, in more interesting ways. But it's interesting. You could definitely read a lot into that and go a lot beyond what sort of we've talked about. But...
0: Yeah, and this this idea of cultural capital, like the remnants of it, the value that's still very potent today, as just a, a symbol or a, a tool to explore different things. I
1: think. Yeah, and in that sense, like the whole movie is almost like a parody of our fascination or a satire. I mean. Yeah. I almost feel like it's part of it because it almost feels like sketches from an alternate universe. It has this sort of weird vibe that it's hard to put your finger on, but it almost feels like the entire thing is sort of made to sort of mm. make fun of you in a way that's really appealing.
0: Yeah, I guess a parallel to Monty Python is suitable in that sense, Mr. Croeson specifically, but in general how they treat history or legend is yeah, yeah, yeah. very
1: playful and... But I feel like it's all in good fun. Like, I feel like, despite being this horrible movie, I feel like the director is having, like, some good-natured fun with us. Like... That's just my feeling anyway, mm. but it doesn't seem like this is to, like, torment you or anything, even though, like, there's so much horrible shit going on. It has this sort of light touch. Right. It's sort of like the Greasy Strangler, or like, they manage to portray this horrible shit in a way that's very, like, lighthearted and fun. And that, I think, sets it apart from a lot of the sort of new extremist cinema mm. we've discussed, because mm. a lot of that is very serious. It can be a bit self-serious. It can be quite self-serious. Can be a bit dour almost, mm. but this is, like, very, like, exuberant in the way way it sort of exposes all this horror in society. It's very invested into this type of
0: cinematic language that's very... Um very enjoyable kind of a, this american easily consumable very um, joyously made like it's almost music video uh, techniques yeah, very
1: entertaining like i mentioned earlier like the guy Ritchie connection mm. like it's made to like be very impressive visually mm. and very entertaining mm. and very crisp and clear yeah. and like the framing is beautiful and like the, yeah, the focus yeah. is mm. very on point and use the, of colors very catchy yeah it feels a lot of it feels very american like yeah. you say in the way it's so sumptuous a sumptuous is a good word sumptuous and excessive i think like that permeates the entire movie it's so excessive
0: so i thought i'd read a couple more of these quotes this article is very interesting it's quite long so i'm not gonna delve too far into it it says here each of taxidermia's three parts thus presents a particular regime of the body associated with a dominant political and economic order each of the three regimes has its own representational style Each of them also involves a specific organization and regimentation, both of individual human bodies and of the general body politic. Each defines masculinity in its own particular manner. Each is characterized by a certain set of concrete bodily practices, together with a certain articulation of power relations. Each regime breaks down the male body in its own way, the better to remold it and control it. Through its form and style, no less than through its content. Taxidermia makes visible and audible to us a ubiquitous but diffuse and impalatable network of power relations, social norms, and ideological background assumptions. Each part of the film traces one of the ways that social, political, and economical forces are literalized, implanted directly into the flesh, and thereby expressed in the bodily anguish of a single male protagonist.
1: Damn, that's some well-run shit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i gotta say like when i first watched this back in like 2008 or whatever i didn't think about any of that stuff no what i thought about was god damn it this is a funny and weird movie mm. so yeah that is very interesting and uh i didn't think like in those terms specifically but yeah I, I agree with a lot of that but what i think is so lovely about this movie is that it works on those different levels you could view it in those terms of very, like, serious cinema discussion. But it's also, like, I think it appeals to people who aren't necessarily into that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. It doesn't lean on that no, uh, no, no.
1: stuff. It's there, for sure.
0: Another comparison of a film we haven't talked about, but I suppose we will get to it at some point, is a Serbian movie, which is very invested in the idea that it's political allegory. But I feel fails in a lot of the ways that this film succeeds. Not to get too much into that film, but they're an interesting parallel as well.
1: Yeah, I would say, like, doing explicit allegory is probably one of the hardest things to do in an appealing way, in my opinion. Like, it's one of the reasons why I think medieval literature is so underappreciated and not liked today. Like, that type of explicit allegory is very hard to swallow for our modern sensibilities, I think.
0: But also in the context of unpleasant yeah, uh, for sure. art, uh, if you're going to be very unpleasant and you're saying, well, it's fine because it's political. like I mean, you can say that about Salo, but I think that is a good movie.
1: Salo does it in a way that's interesting because it's not very explicit about it mm. being allegory. Mm. I mean, it shows you or tells you the context of it, but there is a lot of allegory there that's there for the taking if you're into it. Mm. But being very explicit about it can feel sort of contrite and simplistic and a bit naive sometimes. I think it can be kind of unappealing because, as I mentioned, I think it's very difficult to do in a way that's broadly appealing anyway. Or interesting even. Because allegory, you're just saying, like, this is that and this is that. And that's how real life is. Like, okay, but why does that matter? Like, like, okay, very clever that you did it, but why? What are you trying to say?
0: It is tricky. And... Like a level of ambiguity or playfulness can help a lot in terms of using allegory in an interesting way, I
1: think. For sure. Like when I think of good allegory, ironically, I think of of Tolkien, uh, Leaf by Niggle, which is a great little allegorical tale. Interestingly, since he's known for hating allegory, which is kind of disingenuous because he wrote a very good allegorical tale. But that has sort of levels of allegory and you can take it as a sort of simple story on its own right, even though it's clearly allegorical. But that is trying to make a point, yeah. you know, and it's an interesting point mm. and it has interesting characters mm. and interesting storyline. It also is quite
0: revealing, quite a useful tool of understanding his own approach to art and story making. And yeah, stuff. I
1: would say it's sort of a skeleton key for his creative process mm. almost. But yeah, that's clearly not the point of this movie. It is not broadly allegorical, even though it has a lot of applicability in its scenes. Right, I agree.
0: So here's another bit I'd read out, I thought. The continuing monstrosity of Kálmán's presence in the flesh suggests that the legacy of Hungary's socialist past still weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living, a quote by Marx. The um, article writer refers to Marx and Foucault and a bunch of stuff. Nonetheless, Lyos also suffers in full measure from the alienation and disconnection that are endemic to capitalist society. The traumas of privatization and automation are registered in his scrawniness, his inexpressiveness, his unhealthy pallor and above all his social isolation. He is unable to connect with other human beings or even to get a date. The Western freedom and abundance that Hungarians dreamed of before 1989 is now achieved in the form of the supermarket with its bright and sterile fluorescent lighting, its long rows of immaculate packaged products, and its cashier who scrumptiously avoid any contact with customers. In this context, Lajo's profession of preserving dead bodies seem like a gruesome reduction ad absurdum of the commodity fetishism that drives a capitalist economy. We kill things in order thereby to invest them with an unchanging simulation of life. Lyos only escapes from his unbearable alienation by replicating in the final form of his own self extinction and aesthetic self
1: transmogrification. How often do you use that word? <laughs> Jesus <I'm> Not often. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because that is sort of what we touched upon earlier, but Mm. put even in a more explicit way, the sort of divide between West and the East. And also this sort of nostalgic sort of leaning or remembrance of the socialist regime. Like, especially in the central part of the movie, Mm -hmm. you have this sort of weirdly almost idyllic sequences with Kalman and his girlfriend, well, his wife, Mm. and they're sort of on a vacation.
0: Mm. And they're
1: like frolicking around Mm. and they're like... um, at this yacht with these communist uh, sort of dignitaries. Yeah. And it, it all seems very like kind of decadent and kind of fun and kind of like good times and when the sequences with the sun are like the opposite of that shit. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean it's good times, but they're also forced to do some competitive eating when they're on the trip. <laughs> yeah, but,
1: but I mean like almost on the very surface. Yeah, that's true. Like there's yeah. definitely a lot mm-hmm. of like horrible shit going on and like the dignitaries seem pretty like they're fucking fed up with the shit and they don't really mean stuff and everybody seems like right below the surface there's a whole lot of rot but on the surface and like that's what i mean like sort of being fondly looked upon even though it was kind of terrible especially in contrast with the last part of the movie which is so somber and sad and Mm. dismal and it's sort of very modernist sense of self-isolation in like living in a big city and not knowing anyone it feels very like a parody of like modernist thought on the self Mm, almost
0: that's true yeah it is very interesting how this film navigates contemporary society and ideas of like the soviet era and communism versus capitalism
1: The final part is very interesting to me. Like, that's like this, that's almost the most modern part. Like our insatiability in terms of spectacle. Mm. That is like very spot on to
0: me. Mm.
1: It lacks all the,
0: dirtiness and weirdness of the competitive eating like yeah but uh, it's almost the worst part yeah like
1: it's so like like on the surface is the most beautiful but like it feels like so like such a corruption of the soul
0: well it's even more cold and alienated than the third part with the taxidermy yeah and like there aren't any characters at all really you just have all these people standing also almost like statues there like in these very beautiful poses and like everyone's dressed more or less the same looking in the same direction they're very like non-people
1: yeah it it definitely feels like this sort of utopian on the outside but horrors on the inside whereas like the first part of the movie is almost the opposite like it feels almost quaint in comparison like on the outside there's so much shit going Mm. on like this masturbation and like fires and animals and slaughter and shit but at the same time it feels like the most human part like that almost seems normal yeah yeah because it does have this intimacy you know I really
0: like the way in the first part like he's obsessed with this fire and holds up to his skin but he's almost kissing it or or sucking warmth from it.
1: Like, that's the opening scene, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: It's very beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And fucking horrible and weird and kind of, you know, I don't know, very intimate.
0: Yeah. And several times it's also his only source of light and warmth, it seems. Mm. And he's very attached to this. Yeah. He has uh,
1: this candle ration, I think. Yeah. It's like he doesn't have a lot of it. No. He seems to appreciate it a lot, you know? The little he has, mm. he appreciates it. I gotta say, like, before I rewatched this movie, I didn't recall a whole lot of it. The things I really recalled was the first part and then bits of the competitive eating and stuff. I gotta say, I didn't remember the third part at all. Mm. Like, that was the thing I didn't recall.
0: I would agree, like there's a lot of details I'd forgotten and mainly maybe bits from the competitive eating and like the opening shots that are very striking.
1: Yeah, Yeah. like the head pecking at his dick. Mm. Like that's so fucking funny. (laughs) (laughs) And then the scream, and then the scream is suddenly like the matron of the house calling the girls in for like bedtime. There's so much funny editing in the beginning of the movie. Great transitions.
0: That's right. It's really good. Well, I'll just end off with this last quote from the article here. It says, um, After all the grotesque and disgusting metamorphoses of the flesh that we have witnessed throughout taxidermia, we are left with these sanitized and pacified body images, safely rendered as figures of cultural capital. Such a conclusion is the only one suitable to our neoliberal era, where there is no alternative, and where everything has already been thought of and subsists only in order to be recycled. Just as a side note, when he says there is no alternative, that's a reference to that in an ideological sense, like capitalist or neoliberal capitalism doesn't really present itself as having an alternative in uh, American society or Western society. It's very difficult of thinking how a society would exist outside the bounds of this. uh, That's kind of like that.
1: Yeah, I I, I would say, especially during the fall of the Soviet era and like the optimism of the 90s, it was so normative. Like you couldn't imagine Western society not being incredibly capitalistic and, and neoliberal. Like, I feel like that's beginning to crack a bit more now. Sure. But at the same time, it's still very normative yeah. and very difficult to sort of break out of the mold of thoughts of like that being our only way of going about society. Mm.
0: Well, we don't have a we don't have a fantasy like at least before you had like the communism versus the capitalism, yeah. so you could have the fantasy of a communism as an alternative. But we don't really have the alternatives. The alternative society is maybe the dictatorship, which is like the worst thing you can imagine. So we, we lack like a good idea of a different alternative.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been idealism on both sides and mm. how these societies portray each other and how these political directions portray themselves. Like I was watching a PBS documentary about the assassination of... John F. Kennedy and Oswald you know the killer of Kennedy he goes to Soviet Russia for a period he mm. sort of denies his American citizenship and travels to Soviet Russia to like let me in I'm gonna be a spy for you i want to work for you I hate I hate America and everything he stands for <laughs> and the Soviets are like who the fuck is this weirdo <laughs> like, uh, and he tries to like give them information from the military but it's all outdated and it's like super low ranking and it's just a weird guy and they're like eh, no sorry you gotta go back there's something not quite right about you and <laughs> he's like well if you're gonna do that and i'm not gonna kill myself of course he doesn't really want to kill himself so he's sort of he does it in the most dramatic fashion and he like tells his interpreter to be there like at six and like at 558 or whatever he slashes his throat so he won't die of blood loss basically and he gets sent to a mental institution and at that point they're like oh eh, whatever just let him be there because at that time it's sort of, like very politically fraught with america they mm. can't show like weakness and stuff mm-hmm. so they like yeah just fucking Get him <laughs> so he works like in Soviet Russia in this tv factory for like oh. a couple of years and he realizes life in Soviet Russia fucking sucks <laughs> like his idealized version of it fucking sucked yeah. so I think like there's always gonna be this idealized version of whatever sort of opposing political ideology because normal life it's always gonna have bumps in the road right mm. and I find that fascinating about this movie because it doesn't portray either camp very well no no at the same time, it's like it's making fun of it and it's making these sort of fantasy versions of both. At the same time, it does feel very rooted in Hungarian history in a way that I don't think I quite grasp.
0: Yeah, yeah. we don't know the particulars well enough to really delve into that stuff, I guess. Yeah, but I
1: find it interesting, like in the competitive eating and stuff. It feels like Hungary is always like they're tired of being like second best to yeah, these yeah, yeah. like big <laughs> Soviet states. Mm. They're always coming second and like they don't have the resources. They're always like, fuck. Why can't we win for once <laughs> so it they do feel like they have this inferiority complex i don't know but i feel like that's part of sort of soviet hungarian tradition well like i can mention also because we haven't actually talked about it the actors are great yeah the performances are really good yeah all throughout and i would say the casting is fucking brilliant Yeah, yeah. like all these weird ass characters like how they
0: look visually but also how they act they're very spot on everything way. is so
1: distinct like the yeah. characters are so precise like, the friend of Kalman, this guy, he's always eating. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. even when he's not in competition, he's like, he, there's no, not a scene of him where he's not chewing something.
0: And when Kalman's in the hospital bed, he's almost gloatingly eating, like, just to show yeah. he can eat while he can't. And he's like,
1: here's some canned strawberries, here's a banana. It's really soft. Yeah. Do you want some? <laughs> like, what the
0: fuck? So weird.
1: God. Yeah, but like all the characters, they're so incredibly well cast, and they do their parts extremely well. I can't find any flaws in that. It's so well put together. Like I agree. The, actually, the entire project is so well put together. That's right. Yeah, as you said, the production design and the effects,
0: like the bodies, like when they cut off the pigtail and yeah, like, that's
1: um... oh, that's so disgusting mm. and realistic. Mm. And the puking, mm. I don't think I've seen like more realistic puking yeah. in such an exaggerated sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can kind of tell that it is CG a lot yeah. of it. Sometimes but it still but... looks really good, I think.
1: Yeah, and it's from like 2006, so yeah. the CGI wasn't that fucking good. Like, mm. they did an amazing job, yeah. I would say.
0: And the sound design, we haven't really talked about that. It's really good.
1: Yeah, like that's often a problem with good sound design. It's often you don't even notice it because mm. its it just sets the tone so perfectly. Mm. It's right where it should be. I love this shit.
0: I'd be very interested to read some of these short stories by Lajos. Yeah, Papinaghi. same.
1: I wanted to do that, but...
0: Yeah, there's not much translated, and the ones connected to this. You know, maybe if Criterion did a release of this film, they could uh, release some of the short stories translated as well.
1: Yeah, I, I looked it up on Criterion, I was hoping they had a release of it, but yeah. alas, no. I feel like they should do a good Criterion release of that, mm. Well, although releases are generally very good, but... Just to get some like some extra material, some new interviews, mm. some like to really fucking you know, put it in its context. Because mm. I feel like a lot of people have actually seen this movie, yeah, but there's surprisingly like little stuff about it mm. online. Yeah. Even so, like it's weird. Yeah, that's true. But very enjoyable and very interesting. Just make sure you don't eat while watching this movie <laughs> because you're going to have a terrible time. I had some food. Like, I knew what kind of movie I was watching, mm. but I was hoping, late. Like, I couldn't fucking take a bite. It was so <laughs> disgusting.
0: What were you eating?
1: I was eating, like, some delicious Turkish bread with oh. some hummus. <laughs> but I couldn't eat that. No. So, yeah. That's my only advice, apart from watching this movie. You should watch it.
0: With a dry mouth. <laughs> yeah. So, Svaret. Do you have an unpleasant recommendation for me and the audience today?
1: I do indeed. I've been reading a lot lately and a lot of horrible stuff. Oh, yeah. History, of course, is just full of horrors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think historians also like to write about horrific shit. But yeah, I read recently a book, which is my recommendation of this episode, and it's called The Broken Spears. And it is written by Miguel Leon Portilla. It is basically a native telling of the conquest of Mexico. So there are basically a surprisingly high amount of native sources for the conquest of Mexico Mm. by Cortes. Mm. And it's just fucking terrible. Like the amount of violence in this story. So fucking horrific. And the way the Spaniards treat the natives is so fucking senselessly gruesome that it's sort of beyond the pale of what you'd expect of normal human beings. Not really? Of course, the Aztec society to begin with, it was kind of like the religious were kind of horrible too, like the human sacrifices mm-hmm. and shit. Like they had one god they liked to appease by sacrificing children and they had to make sure they were crying otherwise the god wouldn't be appeased but whatever like <laughs> in this age of cultural reluism like it was religion to them like it was important to them I get that like I find it horrific it is gruesome like yeah. but that's not really what the book is about the book is about the horrors the Spaniards did and um it is fucking like the war between the Aztecs and the Mexicans basically was kicked off by because they are sort of welcomed. Well, it's sort of interestingly portrayed in that they tell a lot of the omens before the Spaniards and Cortes arrive. A lot of like weird and bizarre shit is going on, and they sort of interpret these signs as something bad is going to happen to their state. And yeah, the Aztec ruler Moctezuma II, he seems really terrified by these portents and stuff. And so when the Spaniards arrive, they sort of first of all they don't have any sort of clue what the fuck is going on. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. understand why these people are there. Yeah. They're so strange. Yeah. They are decked out in iron. Everything is iron. Like, even the horse's armor is iron. And they have horses. Like, they don't know what the fuck horses are. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're these fucking giant deer or something. And they're fucking riding them. Like, they seem like people out of a fucking nightmare to them. Uh. And they call them gods. Like, they don't know because they think it's Quetzalcoatl, I think, yeah. the god returning over the sea. Initially, anyway, they seem to like think that maybe that's it. And so So basically, they try to appease them and stuff. And to appease them, they sacrifice some people in front of them. And Cortes, uh, these people are like, no, 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 what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) We don't want this. (laughs) And so they get really upset. And like, I don't recall if they attacked them or whatever, but they send them on their way. And like, they go back to Montezuma. And and he's like, "Uh, okay, what, what the fuck do we do now? And like, eventually, they invite them into Tenochtitlan, which is the capital. Mexico City now. I mm. like they get like gifts of gold and shit. And the Spaniards are like fucking crazy about gold. Like yeah. it's all they care about. They don't give a shit about anything else. Like they give them a lot of beautiful gifts of like precious stones, like jade and like gorgeous quetzal feathers and stuff. And they basically just fucking rip it off and melt down the gold into like these fucking uh, bars. Mm. Like they don't give a shit about the culture at all. They mm. just want the fucking gold. <laughs> And eventually, like, I'm not going to tell the whole fucking story, but basically what kicks off the war between the Aztecs and the Spaniards is that they basically just randomly slaughter a bunch of the Aztecs when they are having a religious festival. Basically, they come to show them their religious festival and they just randomly fucking start hacking people into bits. Jesus. Yeah. A war ensues and fucking horror and fucking violence and gruesome and terrible and fucking makes you doubt humanity so much. It's a terrible story and apparently it's kind of a classic book it's from like the 50s i think Mm. it's very well sourced there's a lot of talk about which sources are used and how sort of trustworthy they are a lot of the context is like some of the history has been written down because spanish christians wanted to document stuff Mm. and so a lot of it is tinted in different ways it's quite interesting like in a historiography sense too i'm not quite sure how like well received it is by historians these days I feel like it's a very good piece of history but I might be mistaken mm-hmm. I don't know but yeah it's a good read if you want to fucking feel miserable it
0: sounds very
1: interesting were
0: they like torturing people were they uh...
1: there's so much torture in this book dude Yeah, there's so much torture it's so horrible it's disgusting because they want to know where the fucking gold is i'm like give us the gold they like sweep the fucking city and like people try to hide gold like people try to dress like fucking vagabonds because they don't want the fucking spaniards to come and take the little gold they have like Mm. and they fucking take every fucking last bit and at some point like a lot of the gold is lost because the spaniards are trying to escape because the aztecs sort of return attack And so a lot of it is dropped into a river. Mm. And like after they retake the city and stuff, they like hound the natives for the fucking gold they lost. And like, Mm. you got to bring back this gold. Like we want this and this much gold. And it's like so incredibly unreasonable. The way they treat the Aztecs, it's so fucking awful. There was also this legend of
0: a golden city, wasn't there, there?
1: Yeah, El Dorado.
0: Does the book talk about
1: that at all? No, because it isn't about the Spanish perception of it. It's no. only the natives, okay. which is really interesting because so much of the historiography of the Spanish conquest of the South American sort of native kingdoms or chiefdoms and empires is focused on what the Spaniards thought and what That's the true. Spaniards did yeah. and stuff. So this is like a quite different take on that. You do get the sense that the Spaniards are really driven by their sort of lust and quest for this gold, mm. which of course does have to do with Eldorado and all these other things. But the natives don't know that. They just find it really strange. They're fucking weird. (laughs) And they really are. Uh, That does
0: sound very interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. So I recommend that. And the author in the book? The author is Miguel Leon Portilla. And it's called The Broken Spears. And apparently that's a mistranslation because the word is from a native text where they talk about like the broken spears on the street and stuff. Apparently it was like arrows or darts or something. Mm. Whatever. That's not really a huge deal. It's still Mm. a great book. Mm cool so what about you thomas do you have a recommendation Indeed that's miserable and unpleasant
0: yeah i have a recommendation <laughs> i was kind of thinking of something it might match this film as well a bit and it's an indie game called uh, getting over it with bennett foley a modern it's classic definitely it's a very simple game and it's a very strange and absurd game but also quite thought-provoking and, and absolutely
1: uh, infuriating
0: yeah you control a character who's just this generic white muscular man whose bottom half is just a cauldron, like a metal cauldron.
1: He's like sitting in it, or maybe he is part of it. Who yeah, knows?
0: Who knows? It's like a cauldron, and then there's the toss of a man, and yeah, he's bald and he holds a sledgehammer. It's a 2D game. The first thing you see is maybe a tree, and then you're supposed to use your sledgehammer to kind of swing it. You use your mouse to control this. That's the only thing you control. And that's how you move him as well. Like you swing around and try to grab onto something and then you try to lift yourself and then you continuously try to. And it's very difficult. Getting a hang of how to move him around is
1: extremely difficult. Yeah, it's so unintuitive
0: the tree you can get over pretty okay i mean you're gonna fall down a few times but you get over that and then you start working up this gigantic wall of trash and weirdness and you know refrigerators and tires and some uh, mountain and bits of houses and you know squishy toys all sorts of things yeah eventually
1: it's like a huge mountain like this vertical fucking shit you gotta get up
0: and because the controls is a finicky it's very easy to kind of throw yourself violently back down again
1: yeah like you don't fail like with a whimper. You fail like extremely like you push yourself with a force of a thousand furious gods like and yeet yourself into the fucking sky and you get so fucking angry because (laughs) you're just about to reach the fucking ledge. And then of course the narrator starts fucking berating you.
0: Well, yeah, that's the thing because it's a very Sisyphean task and Bennett Foddy the game creator himself he has a narration and he talks about facing challenges and his inspiration for the game. It's kind of a meta narrative. He's talking about why he wanted to make this game and dealing with difficulties. And it's quite interesting. I mean, he is a very interesting guy and he talks very well. And when you fall... You have these humoristic things, like, often there's, uh, like, Motown music, the kind of sad <laughs> Motown music about losing love or something. Yeah. It is very infuriating, but it's also kind of delicious in a yeah. way, yeah.
1: It's deliciously annoying. Like, it pushes your buttons so yeah. much. And also, it's based on a similar game, actually. Yeah. Which is a lot of what is talking about yeah. in the in the game.
0: It has a narrative that's very interesting, and you want to hear more what he has to say. Because, like I said, he's, he's a very interesting guy, and... Um, progressing through that story becomes very infuriating but you do get better after a while even as you start to get hang of it you can deal with the different obstacles there are further ones and more difficult ones along and you're constantly kind of pushing yourself against uh, your own limitations and what I was thinking is that it's kind of time to get over like the socio-political <laughs> issues of taxidermia and this game is also very funny it has not maybe political but maybe more existential themes that it's kind of dealing with
1: and, yeah you know, and, and it's just so absurd the shit you're doing is so pointless Yeah, like what the fuck is this cauldron guy right, trying to get <laughs> over this yeah. like it, it doesn't make any sense yeah
0: and everything in the game like he's not made any of the assets like any of the bits
1: and pieces yeah it's, it's all pieces. like generic unity stuff I yeah
0: think. he's found it from just libraries and, and just plunked it in as he sees fit Um, Yeah,
1: because that isn't important.
0: Well, the fact that it is assemblage, in a sense, is important for the narrative. Interestingly enough...
1: Yeah, yeah, like it's interesting the way that's done because the gameplay and the sort of narrative of it is so important mm. that it's a point that he doesn't have to use like specialized mm. assets or whatever.
0: He's a game creator that has a lot of intention and he's worked a lot with very short games that have very complicated control schemes that are more or less uh, impossible to, to do without a lot of training.
1: Yeah, he, he seems like a version of Jonathan Blow that likes to get high.
0: <laughs> or, right, kind of um, provoke the uh, player.
1: Yeah, for sure. There is sort of a cerebralness, and absurdity to it, but, like, it's really funny, too. Mm. It's really funny. Mm. Incredibly unpleasant to play where you're failing constantly. Yeah,
0: you're faced with your own mistakes. I never beat the game,
1: so I never got over it with Bennett Funny.
0: No, I haven't either yet. I I think I was pretty close, but um, I put it down a lot. I
1: sort of like the fact that I couldn't get over it. I like the fact that (laughs) the game beat me. I didn't beat the game.
0: I really like it. It's a very interesting game design. For sure. Anyway. I guess that's that for this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, feel free to send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. You can also check out Instagram, Mubi, and Goodreads, where we have lists and images and stuff that you can check out. Just search for Unpleasant Movies. The music for this episode was made by Umulim, and that's Garning and Sverdogård. That's right. The artwork for this episode was made by me, Thomas Simonson Barnbra. For the next episode... We have... A very special treat. Yeah, we have a special treat. It's a magical circular number, so we have to make something interesting. Yeah. So we decided to watch and talk about David Lynch's Eraserhead. The
1: good old
0: classic. So, welcome back to then.
1: And now, to finish off the episode, we're going to read an alphabetical list of all our patrons. <laughs> Just kill me if I ever do that. <laughs>